1: is when we're in an emotional part of our brain, when we're in a state of reactivity of whatever sort. And the more you witness yourself, speaking from my own experience, what I would see in those moments of activation is I would see all of that habits and all that patterning of how I adapted or how I once coped. I would see evidence of doing one of two things, dissociating and acting like didn't really bother me until I got to the place where perhaps I dissociated and I accumulated so much bother that my inner child every now and again would explode. Um, I wouldn't dissociate at all. I wouldn't just walk away or detach from the person. I actually would erupt kicking and screaming and yelling. Um, So anytime we have, you know, a big feeling, um, that's a really great time to become aware that there might be A deeper scenario, a deeper narrative, a deeper wound that is being
0: touched. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Betty's, welcome back to the Better Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This week, I am thrilled to bring you my second Interview and conversation with Dr. Nicole Lapera, otherwise known as the Holistic Psychologist on Instagram. Now, we had Dr. Lapera on the show earlier in 2020. I will put the link out in the show notes for you to have a listen to that conversation. Very robust and juicy. And this time we have her back to discuss her new book, How to Do the Work. Now, before I share all of the juicy things that we talked about, I wanted to share three ways that I can help you get better. And these are beyond the podcast. So obviously I want you to be a fan of the Better community, a Betty, but you can, there's a couple of different ways that uh, we can work together. So when you're ready, you can follow me on Instagram and I often will put daily helpful tips and factoids and juicy bits of information or watch, you know, you can watch my story stories to see some behind the scenes footage from podcast interviews and from my daily routines, what I'm working on, skincare, that kind of stuff. And my Instagram handle is at Dr. First Name, Last Name. So Dr. Stephanie Estima. Excited to connect with you there. Second, you can get a copy of my new international best-selling book The Betty Body: A Geeky Goddess's Guide. That's you, a geeky goddess. A Geeky Goddess's Guide to Intuitive Eating, Balanced Hormones, and transformative sex. You can get your copy on Amazon. It's also online on uh, Barnes and Noble. And then I want to, I want you to head over to bettybodybook.com and you can download over $500 in gifts as my way of thanking you for being a Betty to investing in yourself. And the third way that I can help you get better beyond the podcast is if you are looking for a group of supportive women who want to see you grow and succeed and keep you accountable to your transformation, then I'd love to invite you to join the hundreds of already amazing Bettys in our Hello Betty club. And every week we get together on Zoom. There's different programming. We have thought leaders. We have sisterhood community nights. We have teacher trainings. I'm training in there. There's ask me anythings. So we are always making sure that you have the support that you need. So because you're a fan of the show, I'm going to do something super special for you. So all, if you want to find out the details for um, hellobetty.club, you just head over to hellobetty.club forward slash VIP, and you can find out all about the juicy bits of the club there. All right. So on to the show. So as I mentioned, Dr. Nicole LaPera, we talked about a lot of the individual chapters in her book. So we started off in the earlier chapters and why she noticed very early in her practice that she would see people that knew the things that they needed to do, but they could not do the things that they needed to do. So they, they, they knew the do, they couldn't do the do. So we talked about why in her opinion, she thought that that was such a pervasive problem. We talked about the conscious self, her definition of consciousness, obviously separate from just like being awake and blinking and breathing and having a you know postural tone and, and all of that. Uh, we spoke about what it takes to become aware, expanding the definition of childhood trauma and some of the archetypes of of childhood trauma. So she talks a lot about this in the book. There are many different archetypes of childhood trauma and how this wounded child. So if we develop this wounded child, if we learn from, let's say a parent who uh, cannot model boundaries, how does that play? How do we show up? How do we internalize that? And how does this play out in terms of conflict with others? We talked about maladaptive coping strategies and how we can experience things like disassociation, how that plays out again in adulthood. And we talked about the trauma body and in her book, and we talked about this on our last conversation as well, um, Nicole talks about this idea that most of her clients who came in for emotional issues, psychological issues also had Uh, physiological, physical uh, representations and maladaptations in their body. And I've talked about the reverse uh, for many years that most people coming into my practice as a body worker, as a chiropractor, I would find that once you dug a little deeper, there was also spiritual sickness there as well, emotional sickness. So we talked about how you can, when you are stuck in your trauma response, be it an emotional or a physical maladaptation, how we can continuously misread our environment. And we talked about polyvagal theory, neuroception, emotional addiction, the power of belief. We talked about our inner child. So again, uh, inner child archetypes as a result of the um, childhood trauma that we endure. We talked about the ego and how the ego and the inner child are like Thelma and Louise. They kind of activate each other and how we can really bridge a relationship with our inner child, with our ego, and how we can really become more conscious and put a little bit more space between when something activates us and how we can begin to reparent. Overall, um, I've had a chance to read uh, an advanced copy of the book. It is absolutely excellent. I will put the link for you to purchase the book in the show notes. And without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Nicole LaPera. is such free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's dot com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Dr. Nicole LaPera, I am thrilled to welcome you back to the Better Podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to have you here. We are talking about your new book. Uh, This is going to be released the week that your book is uh, coming out, How to Do the Work. And I've been lucky enough to have an advanced copy of the book. And we're going to talk about all the things today. But let me just say that I I was very apparent to me, we were talking just about this in the pre-chat, very intentional organization of the content, like very intelligent that And I think that there's sort of this tendency when someone says, okay, like I'm ready to do the psychological healing, like show me my inner child, let me reparent, let me get to the ego. But those actually come later in your book, which I thought was very, very uh, well done. And it sort of reads like a, a hero's journey. I don't know if it was intentional, but you know, when you think about the hero or the heroine's journey, it's, you know, the separate or the initiation, the separation, and then the return to self, which... I don't know if that was any part of your writing, but that's really how it did read for me.
1: I think um, while I wasn't thinking in terms of hero journey and that language, um, I think that 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 structure, like you're saying, separation, ultimately return to self. um, I think that is our journey here as as humans. So I think that embodies um, what I believe in terms of the holistic journey of honoring our whole self and ultimately, like we said, returning to that self. I think that's what this is. This life is
0: about for each of us. Awesome. That's great. And so let's, let's start at the beginning of the book. Uh, the first couple of chapters, uh, you are your own best healer and becoming conscious. You, You talk about, you know, some of your earlier years in practice where you were seeing patients and started noticing this pattern that irrespective of their background, socioeconomic status, um, that they were a lot of them knew what they had to do. They knew what the right path forward was, but they weren't able to do it. And you talk about this idea of like knowing what to do, but not doing the do, right? Like crossing the chiasm you might, you might um, describe it as. Why do you think that that is such a pervasive problem? Because we see it in psychology. We see it in, you know, I work with body composition and metabol- like women who are trying to heal their metabolism. And it's like, we know you got to prioritize protein. We know you got to get good sleep. We know you got to reduce your stress. So why is it such a pervasive problem, do you think, in your, in your opinion, in your experience? I'm going to answer
1: this in a, in a pretty simplistic way, as I often do um, in hopes of, you know, translating an understanding of this. Um, my why lives in a function of different parts of our brain and of our mind, really. Um, so the space where many of us can summon the insight using our past experiences to inform our future behavior comes from a different space in our, in our brain or in our mind. It comes from our prefrontal cortex. Um, it's actually firing from that conscious space that us as humans are the gifted animal that has the ability to do that. Um, so week after week, just translating this to my, my past practice, when I would see clients, that is typically the space in which we were meeting. Um, and we were viewing, you know, the problem at hand, whatever it was that would have brought that particular human into my office, coming up with insight, right? Connecting maybe patterns and experiences all with the hope. Of creating change in the future to diminish maybe the psychological symptoms or the impact or the relational issues that that person was experiencing as a result. However, the space in which most of us are living our day-to-day outside of that one hour a week in my office is typically our subconscious. Um, it's an incredibly powerful space that lives in neural networks, all of the habits and patterns that many of us, most of us, have been repeating since childhood. Um, so many of us are unable to build that bridge from knowing better to doing better because we're not showing up from that different conscious space in our mind at the time where we need to make a new choice to create change, where we need to implement right that new action. Most of us have by that point slipped into our autopilot, allowing those age old reactions to be what we lead with.
0: Right. And you talk about, you know, again, in the early chapters, developing awareness, developing consciousness. And I I was saying this, you know, to you earlier today, you know, we have this tendency when we're ready to start uh, work that we just want to jump into the ego and the reparenting. And but you said, you know, it's not you said at some point in the chapter, it's not sexy, but this is the fundamental first step is to become aware, to become conscious. So other than just like the physiological like you're awake, you know that you have different brain waves, define for us what you mean by consciousness. Yeah, consciousness is is
1: being embodied, so being in self, having access to our physical body um and all of its messages, its emotions, those in my opinion carry information. So being conscious is to be embodied so that I have access to that information and to be conscious means to be embodied in the present moment. Not typically, as most of us are, embodied in a past moment um, where many of us are filtering the world through past experiences, through past beliefs, through past woundings, um, again, slipping us back into that autopilot, essentially coloring our current more with our past than what is so. So that's what consciousness means. It means embodying the fullness of self in the now moment, which gifts us with the opportunity to begin to build that bridge, to begin to, in those now moments, begin to make new choices, creating a future that over time, of course, because none of this happens overnight, despite our very pleaded intention (laughs) that it does, right? But to actually march us toward a future that's different from that past that many of us are living on repeat.
0: Yeah. And I think what was so great was you know, throughout the book, you talk about this idea of like witnessing yourself. So just noticing that these feelings are coming up, or even just trying to identify can you label the emotion that you're feeling? Can you feel where it feels in your body? And I thought that those were so powerful because so often when we go into that subconscious or that unconscious part of our brain, we're no longer thinking, right? We're no, we're, we're cut off from the throat. We're just all in this sort of limbic area and we're not, we don't have um, conscious choice anymore. So I thought that that was such a great, um, uh, nuance and just like, where is it? F- you know, for me, I feel tight in my throat. Whenever I feel like I'm getting upset about something, you know, some might call it a throat, throat chakra, I just get tense in my vocal cords. Um, so I thought that that was really, uh, really useful and really, really helpful as well. love that.
1: Yeah. And for a lot of us, um, speaking from my own lived experience, for many different reasons, due to circumstances where we felt a lack of safety in our body or overwhelm um, around our emotions without the adequate support, we are actually completely disconnected. So I'll be the first to share that, you know, while I went to school for however many years it was, a lot um, to learn about emotions like textbook learn, I had no experience with emotions in the lived experience because I, I spent so much time in that disconnect, that building that foundational base of consciousness, like I speak about in the book, that is the first step in my opinion of creating change, cultivating safety in my body so that I can inhabit it to even begin to then tune into what those signals were for me was a big part of the journey. So for me, I will share, I feel a lot of constriction. Um, Typically, I I notice it in my neck um, where I'm clenching and I realize it's because I'm clenching in my might say my heart chakra, I'm closing, Mm -hmm. I'm restricting, I'm likely feeling something that is overwhelming or unsafe or unfamiliar, likely for my emotional system or vulnerable.
0: So I turn in. Right. Let's talk a little bit about trauma. Um, you weave through the book, a lot of client stories, um, as you just shared very open, very candid about your own, uh, perceived trauma, experienced trauma um, as a child and you describe your childhood dynamics as an emotional state of avoidance. And I appreciated that so much because I think that there's so many of, you know, we are our audience, our fans, we call them our Bettys. So our Bettys are going to really relate to this as a, as a means to help them understand themselves better. And, you know, some of us have experienced big, big traumas, like the sexual traumas, the physical traumas that you talk about in the book, being, I, being able to quantify on some of these questionnaires, like the adverse uh, childhood experience um, uh, survey. But you said, you know, what, what I thought was so interesting was that you scored a one on that test. And so your expansion of the definition of trauma, I think is, is so useful. So let, can we talk about the, uh, the archetypes? Uh, you can sort of name them and maybe a few uh, bullets around the archetypes of, of childhood trauma.
1: Yeah, I want to just kind of acknowledge that for me and maybe those out there who are familiar with the scale um, and have taken it and scored a one, a quite low number like I did um, or who don't have right the big T of trauma. For me, I carried a lot of shame around that um, with obviously the thought being, well, what is wrong with me? Um, once I came to realize how dissociated I was, how disconnected I was, typically I had learned that dissociation happens when big, bad things happen. Um, So once I, you know, entertained and I tried to like, you know, rack my mind for that big, bad thing that could have happened. And my gut, my intuition, my heart kept pinging that, no, that didn't happen to you, Nicole. You're not blanking out on the big, bad thing. So there was a lot of shame, um, a lot of wondering around why I was seeing that same patterns and the same patterns that I was seeing in people who scored upwards of 10, uh, many of whom were the people that I would work with week after week, yet why were we both presenting and struggling in the same ways? So once I you know, kind of pulled back that veil of shame and really began to dive in and attempt to understand, um, I do now advocate for a much more expanded definition Um, one that honors, and I think this is an important shift um, where a lot of us define trauma based on the event, right? If it meets a certain threshold, we say that was a traumatizing event. Um, I suggest that we, we put a little more emphasis, not on the event itself, but on the person, right? The perception of the event, the supports, the resources, all of the unique factors that contribute to how overwhelming or how manageable that event felt. Um, and what I've come to understand is that there's there's many environments, many experiences um, where we lack that felt support, even in absence of the big bad thing happening that can result in that same presentation or those same coping mechanisms, the same adaptations um, that people that experience the big T trauma has. So I simplify it. Um, I I define what I call spiritual trauma, Um, all of the ways that our essence, that who I am um, didn't feel safe enough to express all of the ways where many of us don't feel seen, don't feel heard. Um, and don't feel safe enough to express ourselves authentically that lead to those same adaptations and modifications. And I believe those three things to be seen, to be heard, and to be self-expressed are a core human need. And when we don't, find ourselves in the environments where it feels safe enough to have those things um, accessed, again, we adapt
0: and we modify. In the book, you talk about adaptations and maladaptations. So you were talking about, you gave a couple of of examples like people pleasing and anger and disassociation, um, which I thought was so great because you know, I re- I remember personally, uh, a business coach, uh, pr- like before starting the podcast, I was sort of hemming and hawing sitting on the fence and we were talking about my past and how, you know, it was a strategy for me to hide, right. Grew up in a, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast before, uh, grew up in a relatively physically. Uh, abusive um, environment. So my maladaptive strategy was to hide, right? It was to make sure that I w- that I didn't, um, you know, upset the aggressor and, you know, to sort of tiptoe around him. And I remember my business coach saying to me, he's like, listen, there are a lot of women that need to hear from you. And while those strategies helped you get through this time, this time earlier in your life, they will absolutely maim you you know, going forward, if you continue to hold on to them. And it is your job, you know, as a human, you know, as an adult to reflect on these strategies and to ask yourself whether or not these strategies are still serving you. So- I, I just love that you, that you talked about these maladaptations. I thought, you know, maybe you could expand on your definition between adaptation, maladaptation, and then what are some of the ways, you know, if you want to give a couple of examples of disassociation, because there was a separate part in the book where you talked, we talked about fight and flight with every, which everybody sort of, you know, identifies with the sympathetics, the cortisol, the epinephrine, all of that. But you also really talked about this idea of fight flight and freeze which is the disassociation could you expand a little bit on that for our listeners yeah piggybacking on this concept and i speak a
1: lot about adaptation um, we're incredibly adaptive as human creatures um, born into a complete state of dependency meaning we can't physically keep our infant self alive we're reliant um, on whatever caregivers are present to us around us To meet our needs, you know, first set of needs in childhood are our our physical needs to feed us when we're hungry, to burp us when we're uncomfortable, to make sure we're getting the the rest that we need. And of course, as we age, those needs become emotional. Um, And of course, our spirit is always there, you know, seeking to self express because we're so adaptive and from that state of need, we begin to modify ourselves. We begin to show up in a way to fit into the environment in which we find ourselves born into. So for you, that meant shrinking to keep yourself physically safe. Um, for me, I took on, um, an archetype that I talk a little bit about, um, the inner child chapter of the book of overachieving, meaning I learned very quickly this parts of myself that felt safe to show typically around achievement, athletic or academic. um, And the rest of myself didn't feel safe to express in my environment, namely because there was a lot going on. It didn't feel like there was space to receive um, me and my feelings in that moment when there was very real fires to put out. Um, So we adapt and we modify. And then we become a living adaptation in that way. And most of which we're operating from, in my opinion, and this is why I talk about the holistic model, is a trauma response. It's housed in the body that's directing that subconscious firing and that reactivity. And it does look very categorically in fight, flight, or freeze. Um, right, with many of us taking on one or more of those roles. So for me, it was that avoidance, that dissociation, that continuation of only showing the parts of myself that I knew historically were celebrated, um, and not showing the parts of self to others around me that weren't. Um, of course, this then uh, solidifies a, a belief that those other parts aren't worthy. Right, aren't acceptable um, and aren't warranted and welcome in my relationship. So for, for those of us becoming witness to how are we showing up in our self, in our bodies and in our relationships, many of us begin to see those very evolutionarily driven patterns aimed at creating safety. Uh, And I think that's a really important aspect to honor because a lot of us carry shame with these habits and patterns that might've accumulated many consequences that don't serve us. Yet I offer the reframe is that they did serve us. They were, like I said, an adaptation that was necessary at a time that now warrant not only conscious awareness, but an embodiment of a new response. This is where we literally have to teach our bodies how to enter that safety zone, um, how to go if you are right in that overactive sympathetic response mode, how to spend more and more time in your parasympathetic, or if you're in your parasympathetic mode, how to begin to activate that sympathetic.
0: Right. And this is why I think what you call the work uh, is so important because these strategies are designed to help us not feel pain. So you disassociate so that you don't feel uh, the pain of disappointment or rejection, or you people please to temporarily get rid of the, of the impending anxiety or the, you know, whatever is um, uh, driving that sort of yes state or the anger or rage. So you can just get the, get the paint, get it out. So it can go down through the floorboards and then maybe up you know to the <laughs> other person, but it's not in you anymore. But this mm-hmm. is how we can't, and correct me if you think I'm wrong here or if you have something further to add, but I don't think that we can fully actualize. We can't return home. We can't come back to the self if we don't uh, meet our full physical, our full emotional, our neurospiritual, chemical needs. I could not agree
1: more. Um, and I don't believe that we can then show up in full service of others and of those around us and of the collective, um, which I believe is our journey here. Um, You'll always hear me reference, you know, humans as being interpersonal creatures like I offered earlier. We're literally wired to connect initially to sustain life, um, but ultimately because we have emotional needs. However, if I'm not full, connected to myself, aware of my emotional needs to then bring them, you know, to the person to ask for the support, then I'm not operating authentically in a relationship. And, you know, we have to be embodied Um, We have to embody all of our self honoring physical, emotional and spiritual needs before we can then offer it to the world. And many of us, as I did, attempt to show up in the world wearing those masks, playing those roles. And unfortunately, the byproduct of that are the physical or emotional symptoms that continue to happen as a result of that misalignment, because those needs don't go away just because we've gotten really good at not paying attention to them. Instead, they accumulate over time where many of us have that experience of out of control, disempowered reactivity, where we don't know why we're you know, kind of all over the place in whatever way we are. Um, and again, I view that as the accumulation of all of those unmet needs over time.
0: Right. And as you mentioned, it can live in the body too, right? You have, you talk about this trauma body and you talk about this uh, observation that you made uh, in practice that, uh, you know, admits the psychological uh, issues that your patients were having. You also notice that they often had digestive issues, headaches, back pain, you know, diffuse pain patterns. And I would offer that if you, if you spoke to uh, doctors who do body work, chiropractors, osteopaths, they would mimic the same in reverse. That when you come to a body worker with physical pain, you know, if you are someone who dives a little deeper with your patient, you'll often find that there is emotional sickness, there's spiritual sickness there as well and this is this was my observation for years in clinic and in the book, you talk about uh, two different concepts I wanted to touch on today. One was the polyvagal theory as an explanation for why we have some of these physiological symptoms. And the other one, which I loved was neuroception, which is the, uh, our it's an unconscious sense, our ability to sort of put feelers out into the world and read people. And, you know, and, and it's, it's influenced by our filters, our rackets, our past. So can you, ex- can you expand on... A, your observation in clinic, but also how the polyvagal theory, how this neuroception plays into how we perceive our external environment.
1: Absolutely. And I'll speak from my own lived experience um, as being the human who had the physical alongside of the psychological. I've had digestive issues as long as I can remember and along the lines of severe constipation. So did my family. I had sleep issues in the form of, I didn't really sleep. I was up all night anxious. No one really slept very well in my family. Um, In terms of cognition and just that brain fog that I think is part of the experience for a lot of us, I had a lot of those physical issues myself right alongside of anxiety, which for me was the most chronic experience that I've had for a lifetime yet I saw the same in my family. And the reason why I'm describing that is a lot of us see that comorbidity, right? The physical with the psychological, not only in ourselves, if you are a practitioner in your clients, perhaps possibly in your lineages. So for those of us that were taught right, the genetic deterministic model of, of illness, be it physical or, or psychological, all of this made sense. Well, of course, because genetically, right, I have that gene that has constipation issues or what have you. Um, So it's really, it was confusing, though it made sense, right? Okay, this is just genetically um, what my lot in life is. Until I really realized and understood um, that that's not the case. That while we all have our genes, of course, our, our choices in life are what is impacting, then I was able to pull back. And I was able to understand that a lot of the choices a lot of us are making typically an adaptation, right, from our experiences are what contributes to that comorbidity. And the reason is, um, I talk a lot about polyvagal theory, because we have a very important nerve called the vagus nerve that, again, operates as our nervous system does outside of our awareness that travels from our brainstem down into our gut. And it wraps around all of our major organs. So when you understand that our brain and our gut are in constant communication, those of us who have anxiety might even be able to viscerally connect with the experience of butterflies or how you get sick to your stomach when you're feeling nervous. We definitely, those of us who had a panic attack, like I've had many, know that our heart rate tends to pick up when we're feeling that panic. And all of this is because of the stimulation of that vagus nerve or the lack thereof. A lot of us get stuck in, like I said earlier, one of those nervous system responses. We're either always activated as I was with that sympathetic response, continuing again to send those messages up to my brain, or again, we become locked um, in that parasympathetic and it's via the vagus nerve. So understanding the role um, that our nervous system plays through the process of neuroception, which really just highlights the fact that all of this is happening outside of our awareness. We are constantly scanning our environment. And if you're like me with anxiety, with panic locked in that sympathetic response, we're not scanning it for, you know, confirmation that we're safe. We're scanning it for the next threat. We're scanning it to confirm that our activation is warranted because all of these stressful things are coming around us. And unfortunately, we're doing it outside of our awareness. So our whole system is in that reactive state, even before our conscious mind is able to understand that. So we do, we become hyper vigilant, in particular to threat. And then we become, as I describe it, a self-confirming machine where all we see is threat and our whole body continues to keep itself locked in that activated
0: system. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, it's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S U N L I G H T E N dot slash B E T T E R, and use code better at checkout. Yeah. So we, you know, we're, we, you and I talk the same language. I talk about this as sympathetic dominance, right? And it's like your inability, it's like your foot's always on the gas pedal. And eventually you forget about the break. <laughs> you forget, you know, how to slow down. And I loved, um, at, some, at some point in the book, you said, you know, when you are stuck in that trauma response, again, why the work is so important, this will alter, you will constantly misread the environment. And you gave this example of the book, like, imagine you went to a party, you, you didn't know anybody there, you know, how you might, if you are stuck in a trauma response, what your interpretation, you know, people are looking at you, they're talking about you. And now they're laughing at your outfit. If you hear someone like sort of laughing in the background versus if you're someone who is not stuck in this trauma response and you're, you go into a party where you don't know anybody, what your, what your filter might be and how those two things can differ. Yeah. And then
1: complicating it further. We have to honor that our nervous system is sending out signals to the environment around us. So, when we're in that activated state, those we're sharing space with feel it on some very unconscious level themselves. So, again, before we know it, whole systems, whole communities um, can fall into that same state of activation because we all are interconnected um, energetically. And, you know, the lack, I think, quite globally of regulation that most of us humans have are creating unsafe environments for even people outside of ourselves. And here's another complication. Not only do we forget, like you said, about that break, if we attempt to apply the break to create maybe a peaceful moment, you know, amidst the stress to most of us who have spent most of our time in that activated sympathetic response, that feels unfamiliar. And again, to our subconscious, that which is unfamiliar could possibly be unsafe. So in my book and in my work, I talk about emotional addiction where we're incredibly illogical, where I could be screaming from the rafters how much I want peace, Yet my familiarly overactivated system in a moment of peace where there isn't a threat around the corner because maybe I'm by myself becomes so uncomfortable in that state because it's unfamiliar that before I knew it, I've activated myself into a frenzy, either energetically or maybe I pick up my phone and I attempt to address that text that I didn't like the wording of. And now I've actually entered a conflict and a stressor in my relationship. Um, so we're very, we're really driven. Um, I use the word familiar and I talk about evolution a lot um, because like I said, a lot of times we're operating on all of these unconscious processes within these familiar neural networks that we're used to. And anytime we try to step out of it to create change, which is necessary to create change, we get all of these signals to go back, to go back into our zone of comfort.
0: And I think it's, it's counterintuitive, right? You know, if you say to someone, do you think you're addicted to stress or do you think you're addicted to those neurochemicals that cause, you know, that recreate that trauma, you know, that you experienced as a child, most women, most men would say, are you crazy? Of course not. I don't want, I don't want to relive that again. But then you, you look at the patterns and they're like, Ugh. and you taught you, I love this part of the book. Cause you, you talked about, um, He gave an example of a woman like, oh God, I gotta travel now. I gotta go to work, and then she complains about the boss. Then she comes home, and then she's, you know, she's like, okay, well, I'll just put on some like crime scene investigation show or whatever, (laughs) forensics, whatever. And she has wine, and then she's getting the suspense and that, that (laughs) like those crazy. It's like the chemicals are right there. And I, um, I I would offer too for the women that are resisting this. Um, and I see this a lot in my practice. It's the women who feel like. every workout has to be like death. You know, it's like you have to like, you have to die every time you work out, like your heart rate's at 190 and you know, you've, you've, you have to crawl off the bike or whatever it is. Cause that's the only way that they feel like they're alive, right? Mm-hmm. A gentle walk or a hike is like, that's just a waste of time. Why would I ever do that? Right.
1: And there are a lot of us that do push ourselves, our body, our, you know, our emotional systems into that more extreme to elicit a feeling of of some kind. Um, And again, I think it is because, you know, it becomes our familiar, a lot of this isn't um, logical in in any stretch of the imagination though it's important to understand what's driving it. Um, Because like I said, I I always believe that there is a driving factor or force, um, usually a misalignment or an unacknowledgement of a need, Um, typically very consistent that unacknowledgement happens, That again, leads us into that space that could be gained. We could gain some wisdom, understanding. And if we can peel back the shame, create space to create a new habit and pattern in that moment, while it will be uncomfortable, all of the same. Right.
0: About halfway through the book, we meet your inner child. We start talking about some inner child work and um, some of the different archetypes of the inner child. Now you're going to have to buy the book to get all of them. There's seven. You know, you go into a lot of detail in terms of how we deal with each one. There's two of them that I want to highlight because these are the probably the two most common ones that I typically see, and that's just a population bias. You know, maybe it's also based on who I am, but <laughs> you always tend to tra- attract <laughs> the people who are just yeah. like you in some ways in therapy. But um, I wanted to. Uh, touch on the caretaker and the overachiever. And my
1: surprised, is the two that I did that <laughs> I also resonate with so-called. Yes.
0: <laughs> and I, I, when I read them, I was like, huh, kind of like they're almost on the same spectrum, just at opposite ends, right? You have a martyr, the, you know, who maybe be, you know, the caretaker who like gives herself up to serve her children or to, you know, what wh- whomever. Um, and then you have the overachiever who you might, you might call the caretaker selfless. You might call the overachiever selfish, uh, someone who's just really a, a concerned around achieving. I wanted to um, have you comment on both of them. Do you feel like they're on, on the same scale, sort of different ends, like different sides of, of the same continuum? Yeah, they can be. Um, And something just to acknowledge about archetypes
1: like this, they're not, you know, full safe catch all categories. Many of us will see aspects of ourself or parts of self or roles we play in some and multiple of these archetypes. And, you know, hearing those two that you you acknowledge, um, there are aspects of me uh, that definitely I think my predominant one would be the overachiever. Um, again, like I shared, learning how to define aspects of myself based on achievement. A lot of overachievers spend a lot of time in doing mode as opposed to being mode. Um, a lot of us find difficulty in just being mode, as well as a caretaker. Um, A lot of times caretaker similarly, right, we focus on getting a need met, Um, all of these archetypes really are grounded in this idea that we get needs met through roles we play in our relationships. Um, With my offering is that when we're full and we're integrated and we're whole, um, we're meeting our needs outside of relationships and or we're bringing our needs in relationship, though not solely being defined by whether or not the other person is showing up in that moment, acknowledging that we are all limited by ourselves, by the resources that we have available to us in each of our moment. A lot of us, though, operate in these very patterned ways in relationships at an attempt to meet needs. Um, so a lot of caretakers exist um, out there that is very much like you're describing a soul focus outward with this idea that I can define who I am and feel good about myself to some extent by caring For others. So for a lot of us, it can feel like an end of a spectrum. Um, For me, my achievement even trickles into my relationship. I like to show up in service of meeting someone else's need in my relationship because that feels like an achievement. It feels like I've done good um, if I don't upset you or if I support you in the way that you need in a moment. And of course, I consider myself a compassionate human being who would like to show up in service and support of others, though I have to do so by honoring my own needs, by acknowledging the moments where I can't, where I don't have the resources available to me and or where the relationship I'm showing up for isn't safe for me in some way. Um, so all of these archetypes are patterned ways of being that as we become conscious and witness ourselves, you might see aspects of one or multiple. Um, the important part here is becoming aware Identifying possibly the need that we're attempting to meet by any or all of these behaviors. Um, And then, of course, in the areas where it feels safe to begin to expand, offering ourselves new choices and new opportunities for how to acknowledge our needs and to have them met in a more full way.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I, I saw myself in a lot of the archetypes, the caretaker, the overachiever, the underachiever too, which I was like, oh yeah, that was why I, why I didn't start the pod, why I kind of sat on it. I didn't want to be seen. I was scared of being attacked. I was scared of, but then also the overachiever, like must get good grades, must know all the, like, and even in prep for the, even in prep for the podcast would like be like, I am going to be the best interview this person has ever had. Like <laughs> so they kind of all they are all. enmeshed with each other.
1: Um, it's interesting you- who you're bringing up. It could be aspects, right? There could be certain parts of the self where I feel confident achieving in and then other aspects of the self where I shift into right. underachievement hide mode. So it could be, I believe I'm very much a fan of uh, in the field, internal family systems, which acknowledges that we all have parts of ourself. Um, in a moment I can be showing up very confidently, right. As the overachiever in this area that I've gained confidence in because I've lived the experience and then I could have a shift quickly into another aspect of self that feels like I want to hide because this is an area that I don't have familiarity in expressing myself in. So. I appreciate that you shared how there can be different pieces. And I could offer that for some of us, it map, might map on right to different aspects of ourselves, some of which we've gained more comfort or familiarity in expressing and others of which
0: we've actually gained comfort in non-expressing or hiding. Let's talk about the, the work that has to happen with the inner child. Um, one of the things I thought was a really important nuance that you said was work doing the inner child work doesn't rid you of the inner child. Like it's Thelma and Louise, like you guys are together, like, you know, you're not going to just like cut her off and throw her out of the, you know, she's kind of with you for the long haul or he, uh, or, or it, you know, however you, however you identify uh, your inner child. Um, and you said that, you know, through the book, it's this awareness and this consciousness of of the inner child that matters. Like when she's driving the bus, right? Like when she's taken, and I say she, cause that's my inner child is a she. So um, whatever pronoun you'd like to use there, but you know, when when she's the one that's making the decisions. And that's why I love that you started in the book with the conscious awareness. Like what is happening for you? Where are you, what part of your brain are you thinking from right now? Mm-hmm. And yeah. when we are typically, um, the most often time we meet our
1: inner child is when we're in an emotional part of our brain, when we're in a state of reactivity of whatever sort. And the more you witness yourself, speaking from my own experience, what I would see in those moments of activation is I would see all of that habits and all that patterning of how I adapted or how I once coped. I would see evidence of doing one of two things, dissociating and acting like didn't really bother me until I got to the place where perhaps I dissociated and I accumulated so much bother that my inner child every now and again would explode. Um, I wouldn't dissociate at all. I wouldn't just walk away or detach from the person. I actually would erupt kicking and screaming and yelling. Um, So anytime we have, you know, a big feeling, um, that's a really great time to become aware that there might be Um, a deeper scenario, a deeper narrative, a deeper wound that is being touched. However, the foundation of consciousness, learning how to inhabit the self, learning how to witness our internal world, including our emotions will set the foundation for us to then be able to navigate our inner child's presence at all times, because you're right. A lot of us think that, oh, I know it's there. I know what hurt me when I was a child. So done here. However, like I said, our inner child lives in the neural networks in our, in our brain that are firing outside of our awareness, always looking for threat, usually causing that point of that reactivity that a lot of us carry shame around. I can tell you, speak from my lived experience, it doesn't feel good when I've yelled and screamed something I don't mean um, because I've erupted from that very wounded place. Um, it doesn't feel good when I hear myself, when I've checked out from a situation because I'm upset with you and now I'm not going to respond to your text, And I'm going to think things like you'll miss me when I'm gone, similar things of detachment of again, that wounded space that I felt when I felt alone. As a child, none of that feels good uh, to view upon and to acknowledge, you know, the pain that I might have caused loved ones. However, if I can pull back and make space for what it was, um, for the pain it came from, I can cultivate not only compassion, but again, over time, I can cultivate the opportunity to begin to respond in a new way, not to shame myself, as many of us do.
0: And how, how do you begin to move towards that? So we talked, we talked about the consciousness and being aware of when this is happening, but what is the inner child work in, in your opinion? So are there any guideposts or any activities or um, uh, exercises that you would suggest for anybody who's thinking of moving towards this type of uh, therapy or self self healing therapy?
1: Inner child work can really span um, because our inner child and inner children, our lived experiences are very unique. Um, so for many of us, you know, it, it is understanding what that wounding is um, and creating change in those moments where we can shift um, from reacting as we once did to responding. And so what what the tools um, that allow us to create that shift are learning how to maintain conscious awareness, you know, throughout the moments that are leading up to those periods of reactivity so that I can begin to make new choices in those moments. That's for many of us, a body experience that's learning how to drop in, how to begin to feel my heart rate, maybe getting amplified, how to begin to feel my, for me, my constriction, To see those narratives that I know aren't helpful, that are just reinforcing those old stories and those old woundings that if I weren't conscious before I know it, I would fly into that reactivity. So conscious awareness allows us to essentially intervene at a time where I can safely begin to cultivate new choices. For some of us, it's more global in our child work. For some of us, our overall daily habits and patterns, maybe in caring for our physical selves or our general emotional needs, need some updating, need some modifying, need to now honor the uniqueness that is our body, separate from maybe the self-care habits that our parents modeled for us or taught us. Similarly with emotions, while we might feel very similar to our family members, we're very different energetically and emotionally. So for some of us, that means updating our emotional coping tools, updating perhaps our relationships, finding the ones that are safer to self-express, not just the ones that are age old and I've just carried with me over time. So for some of us inner child work is outside of even those acute moments where we wanna change those patterns of reactivity globalizing it to the more daily habits and patterns that we want to update, understanding that typically we're repeating the ones that we learned, typically in childhood, that might not serve our adult ever-evolving selves.
0: Right. And what I know about emotions as well, especially big emotions or little emotions is it's about 90 seconds, right? So, you know, you ride this wave of, if you can ride the wave of 90 seconds and, you know, you talk about this idea of consciousness, if you can bring your thinking, your neural networks, your blood flow to that prefrontal cortex, you can ride the wave of that emotion and not you know i find myself having conversations with myself and i don't know if it's my inner child or my ego but it's like you know we you know like we're not you know we don't it's not that he's abandoning you like you know you know giovanni didn't like he still loves you even though he didn't you know whatever whatever you know relationship something i've perceived that he's now like oh now he's bored he's going to leave you know <laughs> so there's there's this conversation that i find myself having um, with myself, like, no, it's like, it's okay, baby Steffi. Like that's my, that's my inner chat. Like that's, it's okay. Like we, she, she, he still loves you. Look at all the evidence. And there's sort of a little bit of like, maybe I'm taking a little bit of CBT, a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, a little bit of, um, you know, what you talk about in the book as talking to your ego or naming your ego. Um, and I wanted to maybe move this conversation and we'll sort of blend the conversation with the inner child and the ego, because I find that they just play off of each other, right? Like your inner child is like, and then the ego is like, we don't, we're not like that. We have the, you know, and then it's like, and then you have the fighter, right? And then you have like the warrior that's been activated who will snap or, or what have you. So can you talk a little bit about um, the ego and the interplay between the inner child?
1: Those two are, you know, integrally connected. Um, the ego, and I simplify things often, the ego is, is often the story that is created out of our earliest experiences, out of the wounding, out of the habits and patterns that we live time and time again within our earliest environments. Our ego becomes essentially those rehearsed narratives that were created and born out of those earliest experiences that are often, as all things, aimed our best attempt at creating safety, Story that helps us to feel safer in the moment. The uh, um, narrative that we assign to the events in life that prevent us or that keep us a little bit uh, sheltered from the actual pain that we would experience if we saw a different narrative or if we allowed in a different narrative of events. Most of us, as we evolve into adulthood, are operating fully out of that ego state where we have this self defined story, who we think we are. Again, based on our very real accumulated life experiences, so we become a self-confirming machine. Well, of course, I'm a person that I describe as this because these are all the things that happened to me. Again, acknowledging that we're filtering out other aspects of our experience along the way. So when we're operating from that ego-based perspective, two things, we're limiting ourselves from the fullness that is us, from all of the other aspects of ourself that we're not showing. And we're also operating from that reactive space because anytime something challenges who we think we are based on what we experience, we are thrown into a threat. We are thrown into that nervous system activation. And then we do all of the things, either cognitively, we tell ourselves why we're better than this person, or we're not like them in any way, or behaviorally all aimed at attempt at creating that safety again, at staying in that familiar story um, so that we don't threaten. We don't feel that threat or that lack of safety.
0: Yeah. And that's why I think the change is so hard, right? Because the ego, you know, you, you want to make this change. You want to be more compassionate. You want to set boundaries. You want to, and your ego's like, that's not, that's not safe. Like you're not, you can't say no to your mother when she tells you, why don't you go to church? You can, or, you know, I'm making up an example, you know, you can't say no to your mother who keeps making comments about your new food choice. Like you, you know, we have these, um, defense mechanisms that make it really hard for us to set boundaries. And and the ego hates change. It's like I just want the status quo. No change, we're good right here. See, we're not dead, so let's just stay right here. Um, so, um, can you speak a little bit about that? And I, I've noticed this with with women. So, I recently did a, a boundary training uh, inside my membership for my for my Bettys, and people were uncomfortable. Like we did a little, uh, pl- like we did a little role playing. I said, "Here's where it doesn't count." It doesn't matter here. We're going to, you know, I'm going to put you into groups and you're going to pretend like your mother's sitting across from you and you're going to say, please stop making comments about my keto diet or please stop making comments about my body or, you know, whatever and people hated it. They were like, oh my God, I can't, I can't even role play. You know, it was, and I I, I kept pre-framing it by saying, listen, this is where you want to practice it when you're not activated. Like when your mom's not upsetting you, you know, and even then, you know, you could see this egoic flair, you know, with love and compassion, right? Like that's why we do the, that's why we do these trainings. But I wondered if you could maybe comment a little bit on why it's so hard for us to, um, to sort of make the change. Like it's, the, it's the, what we were talking about at the top of the hour, like crossing the chiasm, knowing what we need to do versus doing what we need to do. How can we begin to not placate the ego, but just bring her down a little bit or be able to remove some of the resistance that she often offers, um, in, and to allow us to do things like boundary setting, um, and reparenting and, you know, becoming aware and doing some of the work that you offer in the book. Why is it so hard? First thing I want to, want to, um, Offer just around all things ego
1: is acknowledged universal acknowledgement that we all have one. Again, it's based in our self protection and our survival, and all of the adaptations that we've been talking about that have created our onion, right? Our way of being or habit self in the world. So, anyone out there, and I say this because a lot of us have heard different ideas and definitions of ego. A lot of times, with like this idea that we need to kill it or, you know, no, slam it down. Slay the dragon. Not, not yeah. welcomed, right? And again, yeah. I'm the offer that these stories have kept us safe, um, particularly when we're talking about our relational patterns, how we show up. The fact that you know we can't tell mom or to stop commenting about our diet, or we can't tell mom not to come over unannounced, um, or whatever the issue is. The point of exploration that would be really helpful for us as individuals, because it is a little bit different, is exploring why what is typically the fear that what is the imagined scenario that would happen as a result of you doing whatever it is that you're deeming you can't do or that's activating that discomfort when you even imagine saying no or or not showing up in that way and if we dive and drive down into that typically it is a fear it is a fear of not being accepted not being loved not being connected losing that person and any version in between of all of those things again typically created out of an experience where that might have been the case where you did express something to someone at a time and given the circumstances felt shame or felt unaccepted for whatever reason so each of us this is an individualized you know exploration but understanding why what is the imagined concern and typically it does relate to some version of abandonment or rejection Um, which then in that moment we can honor if we do know where that came from, all of the pain, you know, that was very much a part of that rejection or that abandonment at one time. Um, And then of course the journey into boundaries and into creating change means showing up differently despite those imagined fears and discovering one of two things happen, right? Either you show up differently and the thing that you imagine doesn't actually happen. Um, And then you obviously empower yourself to continue to show up in that new way, or it does. And then you gift yourself with the opportunity, right? To continue on, to show yourself that you can actually tolerate more than when you were a child, likely you previously could either way, empowering yourself to continue to, albeit uncomfortable. And I'm the first person, I talk a lot about boundaries, All of my difficulty creating boundaries within my family, in particular, within my relationships, acknowledging, however, that limits now, space to express now, creates a relationship that's much more sustainable long term. So us saying yes now to placate someone um, out of fear that if we don't do that, they'll leave us over time results in, again, continued unmet needs and typically resentment upset at another person. Um, And resentment, I know, and any um, relationship therapist out there probably has studied the idea of contempt, um, which is a document relationship killer. The more we get upset with someone else for our unmet needs, the more likely we are to cause damage to that relationship. So boundaries are incredibly uncomfortable, though for many of us, they are the limits and the new safety mechanisms that save our relationships over time.
0: Yeah. And I love everything you're saying. And I, you know, I think Brene Brene Brown said something to the effect of being clear is one of the kindest things that you can do, right? If someone's saying, hey, do you want to volunteer for such and such? And you just, you're already overextended and you say yes, as you were saying, it's the contempt, it's the resentment that builds up and they have no idea why that may be happening. So you are building up all this resent and this contempt And they are, they are completely unaware of it. So it's one of the kindest things that you can do for your, not only yourself, as you were saying, but also for your relationship and your consideration for that person. Cause it's not, uh, I can't remember who had said this. I want to say Melissa Urban, um, she might've said this online, like it's not up to other people to know what our boundaries are. It's up to us to be able to communicate them. And as you, you know, as you talk about in the book, to be able to uphold them to maintain those boundaries once they've been set
1: furthermore it's not up to other people to be able to know or anticipate our needs um at one time in infancy you know our parents were all knowing they were our only attempt at survival so we had hoped right that they knew our needs in any given moment many of us can look back to that childhood experience and acknowledge that even they in those moments weren't fully attuned to what our actual authentic needs are yet as adults, so many of us project that expectation on the partners around us, the friends around us, the community around us with this idea that they, if they love me enough, they would just know. Um, we are all different, unique humans. Often what is helpful for me in every, any given moment, even those of which I that are so similar, like you said, we tend to attract similar people in some ways, even the most similar human to myself that I know thus far on my journey isn't this, the same. In every way. So if I hold that expectation, I really do set our myself and my relationship up for disappointment um, because no one can fully anticipate our needs. And some of us are wishing other people knew our needs when we don't really even know our needs. Right.
0: Right. Which is where, again, back to the beginning, why conscious awareness is so important. Because if you don't know why you're reacting or when you're reacting, how can you ever imagine to, to to uphold, to even just create a boundary? If you don't even know yourself, what is the, what is the physiology that's happening in your body? Why is this upsetting you and doing some self-reflection on that? That's beautifully, beautifully said. I think this has been I mean, your book, I have to also say Giovanni and I, uh, both have a copy and we are going to have our own little relationship book club around this. So we are going to reread it you know, I read it in preparation for my interview with you today. Um, and we are going to reread it as a couple, uh, so that we can better show up for ourselves, and then for each other. And this, you know, you conclude the book by talking about this idea of interdependence, which is why I was like, man, this is like a hero and this is a hero's journey. It's like, you start off with the we, like we're the family, we do this, we, 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 and then you separate from that. And then you return to this this idea of interdependence. So we're doing a relationship book club. I don't, we've never done this before, but I'm really, I'll, I'll make sure to tell you how it, how it goes in terms of how we show up for each other. But I wanted you to tell our Bettys um, all the places that they can find you. You talk about the book the podcast the self-healer circle tell them everything where can where can they find you on instagram all the places
1: absolutely i i so appreciate you sharing that with me um you and giovanni's intention to do that and honestly i'm smiling so big stephanie because my hope um, is that this is a book that people live with in that way Um, that maybe it is a a read. There is a narrative aspect. You can read through it in one sitting, though, you know, I hope that this becomes a workbook that people can revisit, whether it's in the context of their relationship or just their evolution, right? Picking it up, putting it down, picking it up at a later time where a different part comes into your awareness. So I hope this book is utilized similarly to the way that um, you and Giovanni are going to use it. Uh, those of you who are not familiar with uh, my Instagram platform, I am at the dot holistic dot psychologist, where each and every day, um, sharing the tools of healing, sharing my journey of healing, um, with the community of self healers. That is so incredible. I'm um, showing up from really all corners of the world at this point, um, doing the work in their own lives and in their own communities. So for those of you as I was um, and one of my intentions of creating uh, the account itself was to connect authentically with those other humans was to find and create those authentic, safe relationships, Um, acknowledging that I didn't have those present in my life. Um, So that's a very important aspect of healing. And that is on the Instagram account. Um, I have a new revamped website um, that you can get uh, all of the freebies that I'm always giving out the future self journal. Um, the daily intentional journaling practice that I created to help us create change, as well as those of you who will purchase the book um, or who don't because they're free either way. I have a few guided meditations that will live also on the website and it's yourholisticpsychologist.com that go along with the book and the healing journey. Um, That is also where you can access the wait list for my self healer circle. My virtual learning community membership, where each and every month we dive a bit deeper, again, as a community into a topic of healing, where myself or I invite experts in from other aspects of the field, other areas of expertise to come in and share their stories and their tools. Um, And it's called the Self Healer Circle so there's a, a wait list on there, so anyone who's interested can jump on that wait list and be alerted for the next time that that opens. And then the final place, also getting an overhaul and a re a revamp look, uh, is the YouTube. So for those of you who are familiar, know that I put out weekly teaching videos on the YouTube channel, which will resume again um, in a few weeks ish um, on the YouTube channel, the Holistic Psychologist.
0: Nicole, this has been just another wonderful chat. Last time you were on, we're going to make sure that we link out in the show notes, your first uh, episode with us. And this was just absolutely excellent. Congratulations on the book. It's phenomenal. And I wish you all the success in the world this week and, uh, and always. Of course, Stephanie, as always, I love
1: connecting with you and I want to just sincerely thank you for continuing to share space with me as well as your time and energy and all the beautiful work that you're doing in the world. So thank you. Thank you
0: doc. All right Betty, so you might have found that this conversation made you a little tired. And if that's the case, that's actually a really good sign. It means that you're activating some of those uh, belief systems and challenging some of those belief systems uh, that your subconscious uh, mind likes to tell you uh, through your dreams and in your sleep and in your behavior. So just be gentle with yourself. I would, this is a conversation that I would listen to multiple times. Of course, I would do this as a Uh, I would pick up the book and read and listen, read the book and listen to this podcast in tandem to really help because she really does, as you can see, explain some of these concepts very, very well audibly. And as I mentioned in the intro, I would love for you to follow me on the gram and or uh, pick up a copy of my best-selling book and or even, you know, if you are a furthering your Betty journey to join us in the Hello Betty Club. And I absolutely just want to say that I am so grateful and so thankful for you. This podcast was something I was so nervous to do. And you heard me talk about this with Nicole today. It was like something I avoided uh, as a way of being seen and you all see me now. <laughs> There's no hiding from it. And um, the reviews and the ratings that we get each and every week, I read all of them. I love them. I honor them and I honor you. So all this to say, i um, absolutely grateful and thankful for every single Betty that listens to this every week. And if you are a Betty who is still listening to this podcast, you are so special to me. Because you are the Bettys that I leave the secret Easter eggs for in these podcasts. And I have no idea who it is, but if you ever want to let me know that you have found this little buried treasure, this Easter egg in the podcast, uh, feel free to tag me on Instagram um, with the hashtag Easter egg. Let's see how many of you can find this. All right. So with that said, have a wonderful week and we will see you here. Same Betty time, same Betty channel. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship form and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment.